Come to Los Angeles. The sun shines bright. The beaches are wide and inviting. And the orange grove stretches far as the eye can see. There are jobs aplenty and land is cheap. Every working man can have his own house. And inside every house, a happy all-American family. You can have all this. And who knows? You could even be discovered. Become a movie star, or at least see one. Life is good in Los Angeles. It's paradise on Earth. <laughs> That's what they tell you anyway. Because they're selling an image. They're selling it through movies, radio, and television. In the hit show Badge of Honor, the L.A. cops walk on water as they keep the city clean of crooks. Yep, you'd think this place was the Garden of Eden. But there's trouble in paradise. And his name is Meyer Harris Cohen. Mickey C to his fans. Local L.A. color to the nth degree. And his number one bodyguard, Johnny Stompanato. Mickey C's the head of organized crime in these parts. He runs dope, rackets, and prostitution. He kills a dozen people a year. And the dapper little gent does it in style. And every time his picture's plastered on the front page, it's a black eye for the image of Los Angeles. Because how can organized crime exist in the city with the best police force in the world? Something has to be done, but nothing too original, because, hey, this is Hollywood. What worked for Al Capone would work for the mixture. Mr. Cohen, you're under arrest. Non-payment of federal income tax. But all is not well. Sending Mickey up has created a vacuum, and it's only a matter of time before someone with balls of brass tries to fill it. Remember, dear readers, you heard it here first. Off the record, on the QT, and very hush, hush. Jason Thompson, welcome back to the show. It's been a bit since you've been on. I have a question for you. First one right out of the gate is, should we do this podcast in our Captain Dudley Smith accents? <laughs> you probably have a better Irish accent than I do. Um, our Captain Dudley Smith. Dudley Liam Smith. One of the most corrupt cops in film history. Wow. Great character, right? Just a great, great character. He's one of those few characters that when he finally gets his uh, comeuppance, you're pretty excited about it as a viewer. We'll get to it, but the entire film hinges on him. Yep. The entire film. And you don't realize it. You have no idea. That's the beauty of LA Confidential and the beauty of James Elroy's writing. You have no idea what's happening. What's coming next? Dude, I'm thrilled that you're here. We actually earmarked this a while back, so I can't believe we're, we're finally here. But before we jump into tonight's film, which is LA Confidential from 1997, I feel like we need to do five minutes, which might be seven minutes, on the latest David Fincher film, The Killer. And it was funny, the, uh, the Golden Globe nominations came out yesterday, and I was scanning through them uh, last night before I went to bed. And there was nothing on the list about The Killer. Which is crazy because I, uh, when I watched it for the first time, you were the first person I texted, and I think you know that. And and I think I even said to you, like, I, first of all, I need to watch this movie again quickly. And then I even said to you, I really need to do a podcast on this film, which I knew I didn't have time to do because there's so much to discuss about the film. But I guess I'll ask you, like, how many times have you watched it? Two and a half. I got stopped for uh, my, my dog was having issues, but I got two and a half viewings through. 
it's not for me at least top tier David Fincher. I agree. But even mid-tier David Fincher is better than 98% of the things out there. There's a couple of things that I really loved about that movie. And I, haven't had <laughs> I, knew it. I knew that's what's going to happen. The best thing I could say, I mean, listen, I'm, I'm a little bit surprised they didn't get more recognition from the Golden Globes, but I do think the Academy um, may, may see it differently. I know they're fans of Fincher and a lot of his work has been recognized. So I'll be, I'll, I'm going to hold judgment on that and we'll see what happens. But there was that shot from the beginning of the film and he's, he's taking a beat on that target and, and Paris, and he's he's in his little spot, and he's listening to the Smiths on his earbuds. Yes, he is. The way Fincher directs this sequence where when we're on him as the killer, we hear the music through his earbuds, right? And it's a little bit muffled. It's a little bit lower. It's a little bit distorted. But when the camera is back on the target in his room across the alleyway, it takes over the entire soundtrack. I know you know what I'm talking about because you're, you're nodding. But like that choice of audio design, between the two perspectives of those two characters, that's David Fincher. And that like that was the first 10 minutes of the film. I wasn't surprised at all. It is, in fact, David Fincher. And he's become uh, he's become event cinema for me. When Tarantino releases a new movie, I know exactly where I'm going to be. That seals my plans for the day. When David Fincher releases a new movie, I know what I'm going to do for the next two days. I'm going to run it back because <laughs> there's so many interesting details He's the master. He's the modern master, more so than even Wes Anderson of mise-en-scene. Yep. Everything is there for a reason. Everything you see, everything you hear is designed just so. And it's meticulous to the point where even he drives his own actors nuts. And I love it. I, it it's There's so much to absorb. One of the biggest reasons why it requires several viewings is because there's so much thought put into every moment and every scene that you can't possibly absorb it all. As you're reeling from one shot, he moves right into another sequence that is also going to blow your mind. So you can't linger too long because that's Fincher. That's the nature of motion picture. So you have to listen to it again or watch it again. Fincher notoriously is very tight about what he wants his actors to do, but he does give them some limits. He does give them some room to express and to make choices stylistically on camera. And once you see that, once you watch Michael Fassbender become the killer, you really start to understand what Fincher was up to. But it takes several viewings. Also, can we get Michael Fassbender in more things, please? Wow. He's, he's insane. He's great. What a phenomenal! I mean, I've always been a fan of him. I mean, he obviously blew me away in uh, Inglorious Bastards. He's my favorite part of that film. I, I would, I would argue. In the spirit of tonight's film, L.A. Confidential, uh, I have an icebreaker for you. Hit me. There are three main characters in this film, right? Three police officers, uh, all with what I would say one foot in law enforcement and maybe the other in moral ambiguity. Uh, you have Bud White, who is played by Russell Crowe. Sure. Edmund Exley, played by Guy Pierce, and Jack Vincennes from Kevin Spacey. One of these cops is straight-laced. Another one is kind of considered a brute. And the last one I'd say is sort of a quasi-celebrity who easily can be bribed. Which cop is Jason Thompson most like? I'm probably more like Ed Axley. Really? But I look more like Bud White. <laughs> I agree with that part, definitely. People would anticipate Bud White behavior out of me. And I, to be fair, and I'm not hedging here, I have been each of these three guys at one point in my life. Uh, <laughs> I will tell you this. I favor combining high-minded ideals 
and bare knuckle tactics. <laughs> I got you on the Bud White piece because you're a big guy. You've got a big frame. So I, I could see the, the Russell Crowe parallel. But Edmund, uh, explain that a little bit more. So do you have that like that attention to detail and he sort of has like a mechanical nature to him. He's very driven. There is that. I've never been the extrovert that Hollywood Jack is. Okay. Um, although I have taken um, – uh, I've performed favors for other favors. I'll say that. <laughs> but yes, uh, Ed is very much the introvert. He's the academic. Yep. He's very thoughtful. He's very, very long game. He's He's the chess player of the bunch. But I love how, at least through the course of the film, they – each start to take on the characteristics of the other. Yep. It's really wonderful. Uh, I I think I would have made a really good uh, chief of staff for, for a popular politician. Um, one of those, yes, sir, I, I got the required votes for your new bill, but do not ask me how I did it. Understood. Yeah. And that's not where Edmund starts his journey in this film, but he obviously ends there a much more jaded uh, police officer two and a half hours later. I feel like I have the work ethic and and definitely have the focus um, the driven nature of Ed Exley, but I, I guess I lack that, what you just said, I lack that willingness to do whatever is necessary to move ahead in my career. And that's the part like where, you know, Dudley Smith asks Edmund early in the film, you need to say yes to some of these questions or you're going to have a hard time being a detective, right? Which we'll get into. Right. But um, but I, I will say, and I will close that I have the heart of Bud White and uh, Love maybe some of his irritability as well. <laughs> <laughs> I understand. I do. You live in LA. I mean, how could you not be even just a little bit irritable living in Los Angeles? Right. So listen, we started the year off and I had you on to talk about Michael Mann's Heat. Oh, yes. One of my very favorite films. It's one of your very favorite films. I had a blast talking about it with you. And at the end of that uh, conversation, I had asked you, what movie do we want to do next? Didn't think it was going to take us, you know, eight months, but it did. But immediately you said LA Confidential. So tonight we're doing that. It's a very, very good film from 1997. But Jason, why LA Confidential? Why was that your answer instantaneously? It's been something I've been clamoring for, for from various podcasters. There's a lot of podcasts that we listen to that overlap. Yep. It's a film that isn't necessarily lost. It's not one of those things that got lost in the shuffle that is rediscovered many years later. But it's a movie that anytime it comes up in conversation – Everybody in the room is like, oh, my God, I loved L.A. Confidential. It's kind of known as the movie that launched Guy Pierce in America. Um, nobody really wants to talk about Kevin Spacey in, in that context anymore, and we'll get into that a little bit, too. But it also sort of launched Russell Crowe. It absolutely did. And I know Romper Stomper was like this big underground sensation, but stateside, nobody stateside saw Romper Stomper unless you were really into the underground. Yeah. Stateside, Russell Crowe, and then just four years later – he he's a best actor. Yep. You know, he wins for Gladiator. It's got all the elements that I love, but with modern twists and modern filmmaking technology applied to it. I grew up worshiping at the altar of film noir. Um, the first time I saw the Maltese Falcon was on the big screen with my dad. Um, they were doing a film noir, you know, marathon and I fell in love with, with Humphrey Bogart in those roles, yeah. you know, and um, this is also that. Um, it's obviously in color um, and it's updated, but it's still so gritty. It's morally complex. And what I love about it is that it starts in the darkness. Very much so. Whereas, and we'll, we'll talk about this when we talk about why they don't make movies like this anymore. The movie starts in the dark and then you have to work your way through that darkness to figure out who the players are 
and you start to see the ambiguity that exists within each of these people. Kim Basinger is, is, I mean, she's a prostitute. Nobody in this movie is truly a good person. Not at all. Nobody. Nope. Ed actually starts off that way with his high-minded ideals, and then he's totally okay with shooting a police captain literally in the back. <laughs> Which he does. <laughs> I mean, so, and then we get the Russell Crowe's, you know, the, the Bud White arc, um, who's obviously got a temper. He's got issues, and he thinks that he's not intelligent. Um, but you know, Kim Basinger's character tells him, you know, you found me, you found Pierce, you're smart enough, you can do this. And I think he gets that confidence and then he starts to build and build. Jack Vincennes is shrewd by nature. Um, he's an extrovert. He's the big man on the, on, on the campus. Uh, he's the guy that uh, is kind of the envy of other cops, but also they kind of don't like him. You know, he's, he's more interested in being a celebrity. Yeah, a little bit smug. Yeah. He, he wants to appear to be a cop, but doesn't necessarily want to do cops work. And, you know, he mentions that when actually kind of asks him, you know, why did you become a cop? And he says, I don't even remember anymore. So this movie comes out in 1997. I'm, you know, a little bit older than you, as we've discussed. And at this time in my life and this time in my career, I'm, I'm living in D.C. I am working in film marketing locally with a bunch of studio clients. And I was at a phase where I was seeing everything. I mean, I saw just about every film that was released, whether it be a big studio movie or an independent film that I either run downtown to go see um, I saw it all. So I remember this movie coming out sort of at the, you know, the fall of 97. I think it came out in September. We'll get into that in a sec. I, I felt like when I walked out, I, I knew that I saw something really special, found myself thinking quite a bit about it. And I knew that it had gotten great acclaim. But I think for me, this was one of those films that was a bit of a slow burn. Like I, I, I liked it immediately for sure. But I think when I saw it again on video and and subsequently on, on cable, a lot unfolds on repeated viewings for LA Confidential. But take me back to where you were in 97 and what kind of reaction did you have for that film? Did you like, did you get it right out of the gate and fell in love with it immediately? Or was it like me where it was something that took a little bit of time before you really started to appreciate it? LA Confidential has got everything I want in a movie. Yeah, it's, it's got everything I want. It's got a complex plot. Yep. Not, not just lots of characters, but lots of good, fully formed characters. Everybody on screen arrives fully formed, even without the lengthy backstory from the novel itself, which actually spans over eight years. You condense all that, but every character on screen is fully flushed out and fully formed. Even Sid Hutchins, who's on screen, Danny DeVito just stripes it. Even he, you understand who this man is and what he's about. Everybody is fully formed. The plot is labyrinthine. The dialogue is whip smart. The score is beautiful. The soundtrack is pitch perfect. Yep. Everything in LA Confidential is dark and moody. The score and soundtrack, again, again are, are perfectly indicative of that time period. Everyone shows up in LA Confidential. Now, I enjoy lovely stories as much as anyone, and I am a legitimate sucker for rom-coms, but I prefer being what um, Eddie and the Cruisers would call on the dark side. Um because, and again, going back to what I was saying, if we start in the light, the only way to go is down. Invariably, Hollywood films of that nature include a redemptive arc, right? Our heroes climb back up into the brightness. But if we start in the muck and the mire, we can explore the full range of human motivation. And yes, we'll end with redemption, hopefully, maybe not. Um, but we've learned so much more about the world 
that we occupy. And we've learned so much more about ourselves through those characters. That murkiness that you mentioned early on in that film is what grabs me in immediately. I mean, you, you said something about DeVito earlier, about even just like the Sid Hutchins character, the narration work that he does in this film to even open this film, you immediately get thrust into this time and place in, in a matter of like two and a half minutes that most movies take, you know, 10 minutes or 15 minutes of, of exposition to really kind of set the tone. And, and this movie, you should dive in. It, it, there's not many films that come out like that that are as economical in the way they set time and place and character. A really smart way to introduce each of these three cops. But look, all right. So L.A. Confidential came out in uh, September, September 19th, 1997, budgeted at $35 million, low budget, and it ended up grossing $65 million in the U.S. and $126 million worldwide. So clearly, there was an audience for this film. Directed by Curtis Hansen, the late Curtis Hansen, uh, his life was cut short, uh, written by him and Brian Helgeland, and it's based on the novel by your boy, James Elroy. I came across this great quote from James Elroy. This is what he said about the forces that shaped L.A. in the 1940s. Los Angeles is the big league for people who want to be somebody else. It's a magnet that attracts the hip, the hung, the good-looking, and the damned. A lot of crazy guys that couldn't fit back into their hometowns after World War II came out here. It was an era of boosterism and yahooism that sprang directly from the greatest conflict in human history of a genocidal lunatic that tried to wipe out an entire race of people. Well, that's some crazy shit, yeah. And even though we come out on top with a booming economy, it all filtered down. It all went into people's heads. It got things all screwed up. The movie's out here, and the radio is out here, and television started out here. The best-looking women are out here, and the beaches are out here. Snow-capped mountains are a short drive away, and all the crazy romantics, all the people that couldn't go back to Dog Dick, Delaware, or Moose Fart, Montana, just all come out here. A lot of them wanted to be movie stars, and generations of these people lodged here. Every waiter who comes over to serve you your espresso is really an actor, is a rock star waiting to happen, or God forbid, a novelist, a screenwriter, or a movie director. You get generations of this crazy shit. If an atom bomb ever drops out of the sky of its own volition, it's going to land here. Yeah. <laughs> I think uh, that's James Elroy at about an eight. Yeah. James Elroy is the demon dog of American crime lit. Uh, he arrived from some kind of abyss to remind us that America was never innocent he is an historian of seedy underbellies, racketeers, narcotics pushers, misogynists, assassins, and unrepentant criminals. A new book from James Elroy is like a new film from Michael Mann or David Fincher. Sure. Um, and this has got, I'm sure, a lot to do with his own past. Um, his parents divorced when he was young. He had to live with his mom. Um, in his own words, uh, he saw his mother naked uh, when he was seven. Uh, and, a, and in his own mind, developed a psychosexual relationship. Um, she was apparently foul-mouthed, um, something of a very serious drinker, and enjoyed sex with different partners. She was also raped and murdered when he was 10. Oh, wow. That case remains unsolved. Uh, he was birthed basically into his own stories, and I would love to read his psychotherapist's notes. Um his fascination extended to the Black Dahlia murder, yep. uh, one of the most famous murders in the history of Los Angeles, if not the country. Um, he was ultimately expelled from high school because he was and remains a notorious shit disturber. <laughs> Shortly after that, his father died and his dad's last words to the young man were, try to pick up every waitress who serves you. 
<laughs> so yeah, when that happens to you, you either become a serial killer or you write demons into existence. You write murder ballads. You drink far, far too much. Um, he, he writes in a pastiche of jazz slang, cop patois, wildly creative profanity, drug vernacular, and really awesome, cool, era-appropriate slang with a sort of staccato rhythm and cadence that um, can figuratively grate on you if you don't know what you're getting into. Um, he is my favorite writer of crime fiction in the entire American canon. All respect due to Dashiell Hammett, Raymond Chandler, Eddie Poe, uh, and Elmore Leonard. He's your Elmore Leonard for me because he's my favorite. So this this is interesting because um, Elmore Leonard was in the Navy uh, and is from Detroit. Yep. And Elroy is from L.A. And I'm here in Detroit and you're there in L.A. Had you read L.A. Confidential prior to this film coming out? Or was it a, a novel that you read after the fact? It was a gift to me. When I turned 15, I think, maybe 14, um, my father never had any problem with me reading, uh, we'll just say difficult literature, um, as long as we talked about it. You know, we, we expressed the ideas involved and we communicated the points of that book, whatever the language was. And he knew at an early age that it's foolish to try and hide children from dangerous or scurrilous language they're exposed to this stuff on the playground by the time they're 10 so it's whatever every kid has heard their parents say fuck yeah it happens that wasn't the concern the concern was processing the ideas in the book and at a very early age i was discussing moral ambiguity the nature of the police force the ethics of prostitution with my dad so by the time the movie was released and i first saw the trailer and when I saw it, I was heartbroken because I was completely dismayed that somebody got there before I did, yeah. um, which is ridiculous. It's a totally ridiculous thing to think that someone, you know, um, could beat me to the punch because, of course, someone's going to beat me to the punch. Um, but he did it in such a way that it, it read like I thought. It was this rhythm and cadence throughout the plot in the book is even more labyrinthine. There's like eight plot lines in the book itself, as opposed to like the three plot lines we have in, in the film. What I know about Elroy and, and everything you just said sort of reflects this, but he's not an easy guy to please. And you, you had referenced earlier at the start that this was a really comprehensive novel and a very difficult novel to translate into film. And he himself never even thought it was possible. There's one last quote I want to read from him about the way they adapted his book, which he never thought was adaptable. He said, right. Nat Sobel, my agent, and I laughed like hell because we thought this fucker was movie adaptation proof. It was big. It was bad. It was bereft of sympathetic characters. It was unconstrainable, uncontainable, and unadaptable. They preserved the basic integrity of the book and its main theme. Brian Helgeland, the screenwriter, and Curtis Hansen took a work of fiction that had eight plot lines, reduced those to three, and retained the dramatic force of three men working out their destiny. This must have been like Christmas Day for you when this film came out, given the relationship you had with this book. The only time I've been maybe more excited to see something brought to the big screen was when I knew that Gary Oldman was going to play George Smiley in Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. Really? And I saw the cast for that, and my brain went out the back of my head. I was through the roof. And when I saw that this was coming... The only actor that I really knew, I knew Russell Crowe a little bit. I'd seen Guy Pearce in something or other. Had seen Kevin Spacey before because Usual Suspects came out and I want to say 95. Yep. 
Um, and he was obviously exceptional in that. James Cromwell was the biggest name besides Kim Basinger. Oh, and Danny DeVito. Everyone knows Danny DeVito. I think everybody is born knowing Danny DeVito. Yeah, of course. This cast of, of you know, who's that guy? Um, and that was perfect because this broke so many people. This just opened up the doors for so many people because it is so gritty. Yeah, I was I was over the moon. And I remember grabbing my brother and I was like, hey, we're going to this. He goes, oh, hell yes, we are. Because he had read it too. And then I think I, my dad took us. So it was it was really cool. It sounded like Warner Brothers got the rights to this film shortly after the book was published, as you said, you know, several years earlier. But they sort of shelved it at the time. And I think when Helgeland found out that Warner Brothers had the rights to the book, he was aggressively pitching to, to, to be brought on and hired to, to, you know, adapt it. Kept getting shut down. And I think it got to a point where he had to go visit Curtis Hansen when he was on the set of The River Wild, which was the, the film that he was making with with uh, Meryl Streep. And he was finally able to, uh, you know, get a meeting with Curtis. And it sounded like once they had a conversation about the book and and both Brian's vision of what this film could be and Curtis's, um, there was an immediate relationship there that sort of developed. And, and that's how it kind of started. But Warner Brothers, as I mentioned earlier, very reluctant to develop this movie. You know, period pieces are expensive to make. As you mentioned earlier, film noir is is not something that everybody loves. You love it. I love it. But not everybody does. It was deemed very uncommercial. Um, and Curtis Hansen was insistent that they avoid casting big names. To your point, maybe Danny DeVito was the biggest name attached to this film. So the studio even tried to convince Hansen to cut two of the three leads and really just focus on on Bud White or maybe Ed Exley, but not all three. And Hanson refused. And I guess the only way that he finally got Warners to say yes to this film was to agree to make the movie on the $35 million budget that I mentioned earlier by vowing to shoot as much of it in an L.A. locations as opposed to, you know, being on studio sets where, you know, things get really expensive to recreate. They shot on location all throughout the city. And I, I, I think just about all the exteriors in this film are based on, on on actual locations in L.A. The only thing that I think they recreated was the Victory Motel. And the reason why they had to recreate that is they they shot the shit out of it <laughs> during the big uh, sequence at the at the finale. And, and that was something they obviously couldn't do to a real structure. One of the things that bothers me about the reluctance of Hollywood to make movies like this is that, yes, sound effects are awesome and visual effects are absolutely incredible. You know what else is awesome? Fucking plot. Yep. <laughs> plot is really, really good. How many Transformers films do we have? Too many. Right, we've got dude, where's my car? But we don't have a good follow up to L.A. Confidential. Come on, man, what are we talking about? <laughs> this is a film for an older crowd. This is a, a film for people that can hold more than one thought in their head at a, at a single time. And it again, there's moral ambiguity there. But getting past that, this is complex, and it's supposed to be complex. Modern cinema is punching down. You know, they're, they're giving us the lowest common denominator and I've got no problem. I will definitely, definitely take my brain out and fill it, you know, my, my skull with popcorn and I will watch a Marvel movie because both. they're fun, Absolutely. but I'm not riveted. No. Like I am in LA Confidential. I'm not. And plot matters, scripting, pacing, all these things actually matter more to me than visual effects. This storyline, this, this plot is so comprehensive that halfway through the film when you think that 
the, the police have solved the crime, right? And, and everything is sort of neatly tied, you know, wrapped up. And, and you know that something's not quite right. And obviously, you realize there's way too much movie left because you look at your watch and you're like, all right, well, <laughs> right, you only, only watch an hour's watch. gone in. So there's something's going on here. But there's this whole sequence where there's another, like, you know, sequence of narration and montage and they show the cops kind of moving on with their lives. And then obviously you realize there's something's not quite right. You only scratched the surface an hour into this movie. And that's what's great about LA Confidential is this this storyline goes much deeper by, by the end. And it just takes two and a half hours to get there. The moment you just described, you know, we get another narration, yep. right? We get a really cool montage. It's not over the top. Nope. It's actually kind of downplayed. It's, it's a little subtle. It's got really great period music in there. That encapsulates those missing years. And, and you get that and you're with it. And honestly, who are we to argue with it? Because the the guy who wrote the novel himself said, yeah, they did it right. If you're going to adapt it, that's the way to do it. And they did it well, uh, and, and deservedly so, because it won the Oscar for Best Adapted Screenplay. Helgeland dissected that book beautifully, and I don't really think he could have done a better job. I mean, obviously, he's got a statue on his wall because of it. Yep. Um, but you're right. You look at your watch and you go, that was an hour of television. What do we got left for the next mm, 80 minutes? And then again, um, Elroy's writing and his own pacing in the novels is all of his novels. This is a guy that is throwing Nolan Ryan heat inning after inning after inning. <laughs> he's coming in, he's throwing 105, he's pounding the strike zone, and he's beating you over the head. And again, his books are not easy reads. But then just when you think you got him figured out, he snaps off a 79 mile an hour, 12 to six curveball that busts your kneecaps and leaves you going, what the hell just happened? <laughs> and they kept that in this movie. And you know the scene I'm talking about. So I'm just going to talk about it right now, if that's cool with you. Yep, of course. I know exactly what scene you're talking about. Jack Vincennes, Hollywood Jack, is trying to get back his conscience, yep. right? He's lost something in him. He's lost a little bit of his soul. He's trying to navigate these waters again to understand what it means to be a good cop. He wants to make things, some, some things right. So he goes to visit Dudley Smith in his home. Now, up to this point, the viewers know everything that the detectives know. We are in real time with the characters. And then Captain Dudley Smith reveals himself to be the big bad by shooting Hollywood Jack squarely in the heart with a 32 caliber pistol. It's one of the actual most shocking um, screen deaths I think I've ever seen. Like, and it, part of it is like, you shouldn't be surprised because of Dudley Smith, because he's not the, the warmest character, but at the same time, you're, you're shocked without question. And even though I had read the book and I knew it was coming, I was still like, oh. and now in an instant, the entire dynamic has shifted. Now is the audience. We know far, far more than the detectives do. And we want to see if Bud White is as smart as his girlfriend thinks he is, as Lynn Bracken thinks he is. We want to see if Ed Exley can piece this together as methodically as we've seen him do things before. And now we're, now we have a vested interest because we've lost Hollywood Jack, one of the most charismatic cops ever to appear on the screen. We're with him. And now he's gone. And what the hell is going to happen? How is Dudley Smith going to cover this up? How is he going to make this work? What's his overall plot? Where's his big plan? What's he doing? And then, so these are the questions we have, but we have these questions the cops don't yet. Yep. And the whole dynamic of the film just switches right there. And that's why Dudley Smith is the most important character of the film. The entire plot hinges on Dudley Smith's nefarious activities. 
Man, I'm not sure if Kevin Spacey was ever any better than he was. I mean, obviously, he's done some great work since since this movie that's pretty early in his career. And that's sure. that's a different conversation. That's a different podcast. On a budget of only $35 million, this movie was obviously under most radars because it, it didn't have that big budget that movies at the time had. So Curtis Hansen wanted to submit it to the Cannes Film Festival, but Warner Brothers was, was again, very reluctant. They were just not behind this film. And I guess he f- kind of had to bypass the studio executives to actually get it submitted to the festival. As it turns out, extremely well received in France. And then, you know, it went on to garner significant acclaim here in the U.S. Here's what Janet Maslin of the New York Times had to say about L.A. Confidential. Oh, she had a good review. Yeah. L.A. Confidential is a tough, gorgeous, vastly entertaining throwback to the Hollywood that did things right. As such, it is it enthusiastically breaks most rules of studio filmmaking today. Brilliantly adapted from James Elroy's near unfilmable cult novel, it casts anything but A-list stars, yet in a story with three leading men, no two of whom can be construed as buddies. It embroils them in a cliche-free, vigorously surprising tale that qualifies as true mystery rather than arbitrary thriller, and that revels in its endless complications. Take a popcorn break and you'll be sorry. There's a few things in that quote that jump out to me. One is a throwback to the Hollywood that did things right. Another is mm. breaking the rules of s- typical studio filmmaking. And then again, like while you said this earlier, while this film does have the satisfactory ending and the bad guys do perish because they need to, this again is morally complex material, seriously flawed people. Many of them pay the price. No A-list stars, although I think you know Russell Crowe and Kevin Spacey would go on to become A-list, very short order. And again, vigorously paced, cliche-free. They always say narration is usually the death blow to a film. Here, Jason, it works wonderfully and adds significant texture and wit. Yes, narration works very rarely. Very rarely. Shawshank Redemption is one of them, right? Tarantino uses it sparingly, but it's always with more style, right? Sure. DeVito sinks his teeth into it with panache. Like he is in it. He is, he's not narrating. He's playing his character, Sid Hutchins in the narration. Like you can almost see Sid writing this narration as an article in, in hush, hush magazine, right? Down low on the QT and very hush, hush. Knows everybody in town, knows all the names. Just he's, he's plugged in, right? A hundred percent. And he does it with so much style and verve that it's, it's not, he's not, giving you exposition he's he's setting things up for you he's putting you in a place more than anything he's teleporting you back to 1950s la back when we still had a positive view of police officers in america there's not many films i think open stronger than la confidential and i'm talking about a a credit sequence with this narration that he gives it's a short list you're it, right it, i would agree just, with you it just pulls you in and like I mean, if you're not in on L.A. Confidential after the first couple of minutes of, of DeVito's narration, this is not your film. It pulls you into this universe and establishes time and place and setting enormously efficiently that it just it's a masterclass in how to open a film. I couldn't agree more. You, you get it's not on the gas. This is different. And you can tell that there is something seedy taking place because of the way Danny DeVito, as Sid Hutchins, narrates it. Something's off. So you take these halcyon days of the 40s and 50s, post-war, right? The, the post-war era, when we want to believe that everything was sunshine and rainbows, and we realize that, no, there's always been criminal element. 
There's always been a seedy underbelly. People are always going to be crooked. And it turns out that there was a bona fide mob boss in Mickey Cohen at that time period in Los Angeles. And again, Elroy is a historian when it comes to racketeering and criminal elements. And what a great plot device. We'll use Mickey Cohen's incarceration, right? Now that creates a, 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 a void that needs to be filled. And Dudley Smith is right there to do it. And you don't know that yet, but something is off right from the beginning and you're hooked. You have the eye for human weakness, but not the stomach. You're wrong, sir. Would you be willing to plant corroborative evidence on a suspect you knew to be guilty in order to ensure an indictment? Dudley, we've been over this. Yes or no, Edmund? No. Would you be willing to beat a confession out of a suspect you knew to be guilty? No. Would you be willing to shoot a hardened criminal in the back in order to offset the chance that some lawyer... No. Then, for the love of God, don't be a detective. Stick to assignments where you don't have to make those kind of choices. Dudley, I know you mean well, but I don't need to do it the way you did. Or my father. At least get rid of the glasses. I can't think of a single man in the Bureau who wears them. Nine Academy Award nominations, including Best Picture, Adapted Screenplay, which it won, as you mentioned, Best Director, Supporting Actress for Kim Basinger, she won for that. Cinematography, Art Direction, Sound, very deserving. Editing and Score. We talked about this a little while ago, but this was a banger of a year for 1997. Any other film year, I think L.A. Confidential may win Best Picture. It did lose to James Cameron's Titanic. The other nominees that year, besides Titanic, were The Full Monty, As Good As It Gets, Goodwill Hunting, and L.A. Confidential. Jason, did the Academy get it right with Best Picture, Titanic? Your thoughts? I am not Titanic's audience. I figured as much. I'm not. I've seen it twice. It's fine. It's a spectacle, to be sure. James Cameron is a monster director. There's no question about that. Um, He's responsible for two of the greatest film sequels of all time, Aliens and Terminator 2. He's He's a master. There's no question about that. He's also a bona fide genius. He also knows that he's brilliant, which makes him kind of insufferable. Sure. I was waiting for that. LA Confidential was the best fucking movie of 1997, and I will stand on my boots in anybody's coffee table and tell them that. If you think Titanic is in any way, shape, or form a more comprehensive, better film than L.A. Confidential, something's fucking wrong with you. You need to have your head examined and you're off. The only thing that can really compete with L.A. Confidential that year was probably Goodwill Hunting. James Cameron probably should have won for Best Director, but it was not the best film that year. And I know the Academy has a hard time separating If you're the best director, then it stands to reason that your product is also the best film and vice versa. I get it. I think Titanic is one of those films that Hollywood wants to love and wants to reward for numerous reasons. It was a problematic production. It had all this negative press, right? And Cameron's crazy. He doesn't know what he's doing. He's going vastly over budget, all that stuff, right? And then it came out and he shocked everybody by delivering something that was, was quite strong. I will say, and then we can move on, but like Titanic came out half my life ago, right? I was, I was 26 and through the eyes of a 26-year-old kid or young man that was seeing a lot of movies, I enjoyed Titanic for what it was. I love Cameron. Yeah. Um, I thought the movie was a spectacle, like you said. I thought some of the the production elements were, were astounding. Looking at it through the eyes now, um, as I'm in my 50s, looking at a film like that, looking at a film like L.A. Confidential, which, to, to your point earlier, the story, the script, the writing. Could you imagine if Warner Brothers had got behind it? Unbelievable. <laughs> I mean, Harvey Weinstein 
force-fed everybody his campaign materials and didn't just get a nomination for Shakespeare in Love, but a fucking win over Saving Private Ryan? (laughs) If Warner Brothers and their considerable might had gotten past the nonsense and had pushed this movie, we might be having a different conversation. Um, If LA Confidential wins Best Picture, it's it goes down um, as one of the best movies of the latter half of the 20th century because of it. You're referencing 1998 when Saving Private Ryan um, didn't win Best Picture. But I, I mean, I also thought Terrence Malick's The Thin Red Line was one of the greatest films of that year. And that was another and that was nominated. But it was a film that a lot of people just didn't understand. I have my own feelings about this. Um, and I will summarize this by saying The Thin Red Line is the reality of war in that War makes monsters out of human beings. There is a glamorized notion of people in combat that it's noble and um, filled with valor Mm -hmm. um, to defend your nation. I understand. I get it. Um, And Saving Private Ryan, the first 20 minutes of Saving Private Ryan are some of the the greatest filmmaking ever. It's insane. And can't take anything away from Steven Spielberg. The man's a bona fide master. The end. Terrence Malick is also a master and the thin red line from the novel is the reality of it. War is awful. It's confusing. It's terrible. And it makes monsters out of human beings. Hollywood does not want to celebrate that. Time magazine ranked LA confidential, the best film of 1997. The national society of film critics also ranked it the year's best film. And Curtis Hansen was voted best director. New York Film Critics Circle also voted it Best Picture and Best Director, as well as Best Screenplay. Best Picture nods also from the LA Film Critics Association and the National Board of Review. The only other films to sweep the Big Four Critics Awards, which I just mentioned, are Schindler's List and The Social Network. Those two and LA Confidential, the only films in history to sweep the Big Four film circles. Social Network, uh, in my mind, is the best film so far of the 21st century. It's, it's up there. I agree. David Fincher, this poor guy. Get this man a break at the Academy. My guy, he doesn't. He doesn't make movies that they love. Social Network is just is, doesn't. No, no. You can't find a hole in it. And also an Aaron Sorkin script. Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross on the on the score. Like, what are we talking about? It's out of control. Um, Schindler's List is a different beast altogether. Um, that that I mean, that's it's Schindler's List, man. Like, come on. Um, Oh, also, again, Steven Spielberg, a bona fide master. Wow, I did not know that. Miss Bracken, I'm Officer White. I've been expecting you, just not this soon. Pierce called. He told me what happened to Sue. Everything all right, doll? You want me to get rid of him? Hit the road, pal. <laughs> Maybe I will. Maybe I won't. LAPD shitbird, get the fuck out of here. I'll call your wife to come get you. The experience of watching L.A. Confidential, and and I still feel this way to this day when I watch it, is that by the end of the film, Russell Crowe is a movie star. And there's not many movies that I've seen in my lifetime. When you watch a film at the beginning, when the lights go down and there's this actor, Russell Crowe, you had mentioned it earlier, he's been in some other things, but by and large, an unknown to American audiences. And you know, two hours and 20 minutes later, this guy is... You just watch it unfold in real time that this guy that's playing Bud White is going to go on to have a tremendous career, which he did. And it doesn't happen very often. It's like watching Denzel Washington and Mo Better Blues. Yeah. 
this guy is a star. <laughs> like, but this is not supporting material. This guy is a star. Uh, yes, a- as you watch it, um, he goes through this transformation um, because Russell Crowe's a hell of an actor. I mean, are you not like walking out of this film, calling your stockbroker, saying, "I want to, I want to buy stock <laughs> on Russell Crowe"? I mean, you just mentioned it a little while ago. Four years later, this guy's at the Academy Awards, winning Best Actor for for uh, Gladiator. But even prior to that, right. this is a guy that was in. That you know, the insider with Michael Mann and Al Pacino, like he he was immediately drawn to big time filmmakers and he had a run there. He worked with Ridley Scott, he worked with Peter Weir and Master and Commander. This is a guy that, like, I hate to say it now, like I don't know what happened to Russell Crowe, is he's not he's not somebody we really talk about anymore. But in that that late nineties, early mid thousands, he was probably the biggest star in Hollywood. It was a hell of a run, right? It was absolutely a monster, monster run on his part. Yeah, they don't make movies like this anymore. Nope. Dennis, because this is a smart film. One of my favorite anecdotes. Um, so there's a film called The Madness of King George. I've seen it. That was its North American release name, mm-hmm. The Madness of King George. In the UK, it was released as George the Third. Okay. Who's George III? Well, George III was the king of England during the American Revolution. He was the guy that we were fighting against. (laughs) What's particularly interesting is when they tested the film for American audiences, they thought it was like Rocky. They saw George III. They thought they were seeing the third part of a a trilogy. Uh. And that's all you need to know about American audiences and their sense of history and their education. We're not prepared for it. We don't like labyrinthine plots. We don't like murkiness. We want our heroes. We want our villains. Now, in the modern context, the anti-hero has become the thing. And I'm good with that. Um, because, again, I, I, I like complexity to our characters. And there's a lot of complexity in these characters, especially those three, you know, the three main cops, um, you know, White, Exley, and, and Hollywood Jack. It's a labyrinthine plot. There's several different storylines going on. Um, we've got we've got drug use. We've got prostitution. Although it's glammed up, it's still prostitution. Sure. So we're we're literally talking about vice. That's what we're talking about. And American audiences, uh, they like their vice a certain kind of way, right? It can't be kitschy. It's got to be all in or nothing, right? There can't be a lot of. Everything has to be quick. It's got to be hyperkinetic, right? Because this movie came out, for lack of a better phrase, the MTV generation. Of course. It was slow burn. Like you said, we're an hour into this movie and we've just got to the main plot point and we've got 80 minutes left to go. Either right before or right after this movie. you got Speed, you got True Lies, you've got Armageddon, sure. Twister. The rise of Michael Bay is right there. The grandeur of, of James Cameron is already on display. This is not grand. No. This is gritty. It's mean. There's no good guys in it. It's very slow comparatively, right? I mean, if, if you think yeah. about it, I mean, not that I think the LA Confidential has a pacing issues. I don't. But I think if you compare it to a lot of stuff that was being made at the time, I'm sure it's it's something that requires a bit of patience and a little bit of thought to really sort of follow you know, where this is headed. Also, the idea of having three main characters doesn't go over well with a lot of, a lot of audiences. I mean, um, one of my favorite Fincher films is Zodiac, and Zodiac's got three lead characters. Yep played out over the three acts of the film. Um, It's very difficult for audiences to get behind that. We want our hero and we don't get that here because there are no good guys in this movie. 
None. What I liked about this film is that it sort of, it pays homage to the, the noir, as you mentioned earlier at the start of, of the 40s and 50s, right? It certainly pays tribute to, to what came before it. it. Sort of, it earned its place next to those films. And, you know, this is a movie about the intersection of, of, of corruption and Hollywood celebrity. In a way, you just, you know, you talked about the antihero a minute ago. And even just like the, how popular all the reality shows that are out there for the housewives and all these, you know, Bravo, Bravo celebrities and everybody wants to get inside a peek behind the curtain of, of celebrity lifestyle. And that didn't come too much later. Antihero didn't come too much later, right? I mean, if anything, you could say that this film is very ahead of its time. Because this this movie kind of like beat all that to the marketplace. It beat the antiheroes of Breaking Bad and other characters that came much later, Sopranos, people that you you don't like but you also root for. Peaky Blinders had a hell of a run based on that. It absolutely did. I mean, but this this movie is a throwback to the sixties and seventies. Polanski, I thought about Arthur Penn, Sam Peckinpah, Billy Friedkin, the late Billy Friedkin. Alan Pacula. Out of place for a film in the late 90s. Period piece has the wrong connotation. I know when we think of a period piece, we're going back to like 18th century France. <laughs> this is very much a period piece. Make no mistake about sure. it. Sure. So yeah, there's definitely some concerns about the budget and things like that. But like you said, they shot on location. They they did these things in real places in real time. Um, yes. And I think to a lesser degree, this sort of killed the modern take on the film noir for a brief while. We had to go to television. There are three films that I think wrecked a genre in the best possible way. This one, yep. this wrecked neo-noir. We had to go to television for that. I think Unforgiven ended the Western. Sure, Clint Eastwood said, I got it from here. Put the mic down, and everyone said, "Well, shit." <laughs> and I think Scorsese's Goodfellas killed the gangsters like for a while. Yeah, they had to go to television because that was the last word. What, what what else can you say about gangster films? So all those things are in common. Now I think L.A. Confidential, to a lesser degree, killed neo uh, you know film noir, comparatively speaking. But where do you go from here? I would watch. A James Elroy adaptation. I would watch the full eight years of LA Confidential on eight seasons of scripted television on, say, HBO or, you know, pick a streaming service, Netflix, whatever. I'm here for that. They're nervous about it. They don't want to make movies like this anymore because they're scared. They don't want to take chances on unknown actors. But also, every actor is an unknown actor at some point. The Beatles were once a band playing in a club in Germany. Like, come on. In the hands of a good director and a good DP, you can make things happen in a beautiful, beautiful way. And they took a chance here and it paid incredible. It, and even it was, it was, we're not even talking about a bomb. This was financially successful by any measure. When I was talking to Nick a couple of weeks ago about the Royal Tenenbaums, I had said something about this Wes Anderson's version of New York, which obviously is a little bit left of center in that film, <laughs> is, is a version of New York that I want to spend time in. And I would say that sure. um, Curtis Hansen's, you know, interpretation of L.A. Obviously, this isn't Royal Tenenbaums. This is a far more realistic film. But like that version of L.A. is a version that I want to spend time with. And I think it's like, and I, I jokingly wrote, wrote this down. I often think about this when I watch period films. I think I was born during the wrong decade, and like I just like. I love movies that are set during simple times. This is like when men drove really nice cars, big cars. They drank beer. They drank whiskey, which you know I love. They wore suits everywhere. They wore hats. They wore suits to baseball games. Right? But like this is like 
this is a movie where, you know, you don't mind walking down Hollywood Boulevard, right? Like now, if you walk down Hollywood Boulevard, you're going to see two or three guys dressed up as Spider-Man and they're asking you for money. I'm not interested sure. in that version of LA. I'm interested in the version from LA Confidence. Does that make any sense? Why is that? Well, because you and I were raised by film and television, man. Is that what it is? We we understood the vernacular of, of film and television um, as as young people. Um, and I'll and I'll give you a great example. And this is such a simplistic example. I think sometimes we forgot how we learned things. Right. And so when you're talking to a younger person, this, this happens in leadership roles. Often you forgot how you learned a thing. So sometimes you just expect younger people to know this. And I'll give you a great example. If you see, um, if you're, if you're watching a sitcom and, uh, a, a couple, a married couple gets into bed together and they cut the lights off and then the next scene they're in the kitchen, um, you know, intrinsically sure. that time has passed. They slept through the night. It is now morning, but that wasn't always a reality, right? That wasn't always the language of film and television, but you and I have been raised on it. We've watched so much of it that we have an expectation. Now that expectation is sometimes unrealistic. Um, you can't walk down the same streets that Tarantino envisioned in once upon a time in Hollywood, because that's a guy's, glossed over painting of a memory. Yeah. Right. And when you do that, you take in your own desires and you put them inherently on the screen or on the canvas and you find these things and you, you glorify the past when the future dries up to, to quote Bono. Right. So I used to grapple with the same issue you discussed, maybe possibly being born in the wrong decade. I don't think I was. I think I was born at the exact right time because I now have an appreciation and I can show these things to other people. I can play these things for other people and they will also have an appreciation for these things. Um, a great example. I'm a 43 year old sophomore. Okay. <laughs> There's a kid next to me in one of my classes, an intercultural communications class. And he is on an advanced program where he can take college credits while he's still in high school. Unbelievable. Wow. So he's 17 and he's a very bright young man. He's got an incredible future in front of him. It's, it's, it's kind of funny watching him kind of become who he is. But um, I, I had him for another class. He was in another class of mine. So I'm literally older than both of his parents, right? He's 17. His mom and dad are 40 and 41. I'm 43. Yeah. So he leans over to me, goes, Hey man, I just discovered this really cool old band. Do you know about Soundgarden? <laughs> oh man. I was like, yeah, yeah, I do. I do. And I do know about Soundgarden. Now this isn't lost on me. I know how time works. Sure. I know that I'm getting older and I knew that being a 42 year old freshman, this was going to happen eventually. And it's fine. That's how life works. So what I did instead then was rather than lamenting how old I am, um, we celebrated Soundgarden. And then I said, if you're into that band, check out these bands, some contemporaries of Soundgarden. You can, you know, extrapolate. Of course. Uh, and I was like, and then let's walk backward. And then I introduced him to Black Sabbath. Right. And he goes, oh, my God. He comes in the next day or the two days later. He's like, oh, my God, I just listened to Black Sabbath's first two records. And I was like, here we go. And so. By being in this middle ground, I can look forward to what's coming next 
but I can also spread the love about what has already happened, um, about these things that we need to see, these things that we need to listen to. And that's the beauty of it is that they're on record. I see your point. I get it. I think I was born at the exact right time because I know who Joe DiMaggio is and I know who Shohei Otana is. I think that's a great point. And I maybe don't look at it through that lens as much as I should. And I agree with everything you just said. I, I guess when I watch those films, you just referenced Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, which, you know, stars plays every 10 minutes. Um, and every time I come across it, I literally, it's on like, it's probably on right now. And, um, and I usually put the remote down and I will watch it for a while. But when I watch a film like that or some of these other period pieces, or if it's LA Confidential, it's like when I'm watching it, certainly appreciating what I'm seeing. But I also say to myself, I wouldn't mind living at that time. And I, and I think it's like when I see, you know, Brad Pitt, you know, you know, as Cliff Booth driving home after he drops off, you know, his, his buddy and he's like, you know, he's driving on the highway and he's playing the music really loud and you see the wind. And then like, and then there's this, he's driving behind this big drive-in movie theater and he goes back to his trailer. Not that I, I want to live in a trailer, but there's like this romantic nature of the way Tarantino tells that story and that, and, and just like the time and place of, of Hollywood in the, in the late sixties, early seventies, those maverick filmmakers that I mentioned earlier, right. like, man, like I would have loved, and I've said this on previous pods. I probably said it with you before, but like, I would have loved to have been like a 35 year old in like the early mid seventies. So I could see films like deliverance and films like 2001 and the late sixties, like watching that stuff first run in theaters, my fucking mind would have been blown. But we, we have our own, we have our own. Okay. And here's what I mean by that. So I was talking to my dad about what it was like in 77 when Star Wars first came out, right? And so him and his brother, my my Uncle Alan, they were like, we've been clamoring for this forever. Like, these are the things that we wanted to see, like, since Star Trek went off the air, you know, in 66, we've been longing for this. But visually, Star Wars for the time was just out of control, compelling. But we also got to see the Matrix on the big screen. And I know the Matrix is kind of a, I don't know, whatever, kind of a goof now. But when that first came out, everybody left that theater going, what the fuck? Yeah, it was transformational. Absolutely. Like your brain visually just went out of control, like putty stalactites dripping from the ceiling. Like, what did I just see? Yep. And, you know, at the time it was the highest selling DVD of all time. Um So we get our own. Now, don't get me wrong. I get it. Like, we both have a passion for older films. Um, and seeing those things in the theater for the first time would have definitely been revelatory. But we now have an exceptional opportunity to show other people these things. You have a, a, an incredibly um, interesting nephew in, in Oliver who is filled with ideas and, and fascinations. And, you know, both you and your brother obviously have great taste. So, you know, feeding him and feeding him and feeding him because now he's going to have an even greater depth of knowledge than we did. You know, now here's the other thing. Here's why I like being where I am now. Um, one, we can watch whatever the fuck we want whenever we want. It's amazing. Of course. <laughs> yep. You know, so like we can go just go buy a film right now. You know, if we haven't seen it in a while, we can plug it into the DVD and watch it. We can stream it, whatever. That wasn't the case. No. You know, 1975, you had to wait and you had to wait and you had to hope that it ran on, on network television. And of course it was going to be sanitized and chopped down from its original widescreen format, you know? So there are drawbacks, don't get me wrong, and there are definitely pluses in, in living where we are. But I mean, 
you know, I got a 60 inch television and a Blu-ray DVD player, man. I can watch Deliverance right now. <laughs> Miss, I'm Lieutenant Exley. I'm sorry to have to ask you this. I need to know what time they left you. Get her to the hospital. I realize Excuse this me. is difficult. Give your career a rest. Leave her alone. A naked guy with a gun? You expect anyone to believe that? Get the fuck away from me. How's it going to look in your report? It'll look like justice. That's what the man got. Justice. You don't know the meaning of the word, you ignorant bastard. Yeah? Well, you think it means getting your picture in the paper. Why don't you go after criminals for a change instead of cops? Stenzlin got what he deserved, and so will you. Jason, I want to talk about two below-the-line elements to this film. One is the costume design, and the other is the cinematography. Costumes were done by Ruth Myers, and I did some research on this, and I just I just think the costume work in this film is pretty tremendous. But this is um, one of the things that she said in my research is that each of the three characters and, and the journeys they go through are why she dressed them the way they, they, that, that she did. So this is what she said about Kevin Spacey's um, attire as as Jack. The white jacket of Kevin Spacey is outrageous. If you look hmm. at the research of detectives of that era, they were sort of the glamour boys of the time. They did make good, very good money, and they were really very loud. We have a lot of research, and I was like, my God, this is what they were wearing to work? They were like peacocks. And so if you notice it in this film, the first half of L.A. Confidential, Jack's wearing very flamboyant jackets, white blazers, you know, very showy. That's his character, right? But to that point earlier, halfway through the film, when the most pivotal scene in this film, when he gets shot by, by Dudley Smith, Right before that, Jack grows a conscience. And I'm not sure if you've noticed this, but when he does, he starts wearing very conservative suits, very like very basic colors, grays and, and dark blues. And he obviously is trying to dress the part, right, of, of being a for real detective. Then you've got Bud White, who's sort of like just, you know, just moseys through this film. He's sort of an unknown. He's not happy with himself. He doesn't really take himself seriously. He's kind of a thug. And for that, she dr- she dressed him in browns. So this is what she said about that. For Bud, I just saw him in brown. He's a bit of an unmade bed. I just had always seen those brownie tones as earthy. In the world of these rather flamboyant detectives, I wanted him to look unadorned. And brown sort of always felt right to me. And he is someone with a heart. He's the only one in the whole film with a heart. So to give him the sense of earthy warmth seemed important to me. And then finally, about Edmund Exley, she says... The grays, the blues, there's kind of a coldness there and also a uniformity. And that's why he dresses the way he does. Isn't that fascinating? The best costume designers recognize this in the characters. Right. And they let that breathe. And what's amazing to me is that to make not just a good film, but just a film, everything has to be going in the right direction at the same time and the same speed. And that's a lot of pieces to orchestrate to be having, you know, to, to work in concert. Of course. That alone is a minor miracle. You get 20 people in a room together, they have a hard time figuring out where they want to go to lunch, <laughs> let alone how to make a film, to make a film like this. And I, I genuinely think the LA Confidential is a bit of a masterpiece. Um, everything has to be just right. The Captain Smith's house has to be just right. And of course he's wearing pajamas, right? Of course he is, yep. right? And and of course Hollywood Jack is wearing these these loud suits with with nice loafers. And of course Ed Exley is 
buttoned down and professional and, you know, nice, crisp looking. And yeah, Bud White doesn't wear a tie all that often. And if he does, it's, you know, mostly loose because again, he's the earthy one. And of course, Lynn Bracken looks the way she looks because she has to be gorgeous. And David Strathorn looks like he's the editor of Esquire magazine. Yep. Right. Pierce Patchett. Yep. Pierce Patchett. And of course, Sid Hutchins looks the way he looks because he's in the newspaper business and the hotel looks the way it looks. All these things are, are somebody had to make a conscious choice to do that. And it could have gone wrong at any opportunity, but the fact that she put that much thought and care into who these actors are or these characters are rather just speaks volumes about how good this movie really is. Everything from the lighting, the, um, the set design, um, the, the night owl coffee shop, like, I know that you're a, a, a counter guy, right? Yeah, I wrote that in my notes for you. I would love, I love places like the Night Owl, dude. I would totally go there. Absolutely. I am 100% a 100% a counter guy, and I am <laughs> always interested in a Gracie spoon. Sure. I am, never, I am never not interested in having breakfast at 3 o'clock in the morning. That's that kind of place. Well, they'll just bring the coffee over. You know that they'll just always top you off. They won't even ask. <laughs> yep. Sure. Thank you. Appreciate it. Um, and I love that. Every, even even the police station itself, you can almost smell it, right? You can smell the stale coffee. Um, there, there are certain moments in the film, too. I, I, I think the, the incident that makes the whole movie pop off, um, Bloody Christmas, right? Yeah. So the, the riot, Down you know, in the, the cells. The, uh, the holding cells, yeah. Right. So Bud loses his shit because that's what Bud does. You know, uh, Stensland's already loaded out of his mind. Um, there's a great moment though, just to show you how vain Jack is. One of the guys that's already got hit, right? His nose is bloody. He bumps into Jack, right? And bloodies up his tie and his shirt. And Jack looks down in disgust. And he's like, Oh hell with it. And he just pops the guy. You're like, that's how vain and arrogant Jack is. But it also showcases how violent Bud White's willing to be. And it also showcases Ed Exley and his exactness and his adherence to law enforcement and good order and discipline. Yep. All all those characters, when they first start, are on display right there with Bloody Christmas. Is L.A. Confidential a Christmas movie? You said this to me last winter when we uh, when I said that we should do this later in the year. You're like, well, it is a Christmas movie. It is. It's an understated Christmas film. But it, when you watch it again, you'll you definitely notice that. This this movie opens during the holidays, and it, it's it's quite clear that there's there's Christmas parties that they're getting booze for and whatnot. And there is something else too that I want to bring up. So we got the Night Owl Coffee Shop, and we we'll definitely want to hang out there. Um, fun fact: I have a friend of mine out in San Diego who played in a band, a, a, a surf punk rock band called the Night Owl Massacre. Oh, that's awesome! What a great name, right? But also, since you mentioned it previously, that sequence in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Right when Cliff takes off and he's driving down the road, driving down Hollywood Boulevard or yep. whatever, he passes the frolic room. He does. And in L.A. Confidential, Jack is having a moral crisis. He, he's got that 50 bucks. He lays it on his bourbon. Yeah. Right. From Sid. And he's drinking in the frolic room. Well, it turns out the frolic room really exists. So the next time I'm in L.A., Dennis, you and I are having a drink together in the frolic room. I freaking love that. You know that that he puts a 50 on the on the glass, right? When he finally decides he does, to yeah. up and and doesn't realize what he's about to walk into with Dudley Smith, but that $50 bill, I looked this up the other day. That $50 bill is worth like at the time, 
that was like 500 bucks. That was like a major life decision he was making at that point when he put that bill down. And that, that bartender is going on vacation to Cancun the next week with that tip. Just a quick shout out to um, the cinematographer, your boy, Dante Spinati, who may have shot a little movie called Heat. Oh, right. The interesting thing here is that Hanson did not want this film to feel overly nostalgic that he kind of told Spinati to shoot it like a contemporary film and just let the natural lighting and all these these exterior locations sort of um, work hard for the film, which is what they ended up doing. And one of the things that I love about it is that each scene is shot to say it's shot accurately is kind of a misnomer. And what I mean by that is all the shots in the police station are very stale. It's got that awful overhead lighting yeah. that you see sure. in, you know, municipal buildings, right? The shots in, in Lynn's home, they're very warm. They're very inviting, right? And of course, that's part of how her home is designed, but that's how it's, you know, intended to be. There are bright spots, you know, because it is LA, right? It's going to be bright. Um, but then the dark, the dark is like pools of inky black, Right. When when uh, Dudley Smith braces Sid Hutchins at the Victory Motel, like there are spots in that that you can't see. Like Gordon Willis would be thrilled with some of the stuff. He's like, it's so dark. Yes. You know, and then, of course, the final gunfight, which happens at night in the Victory Motel in a shot up hotel room already with no existing light. And you're getting these beams of light in classic film noir, you know, tribute coming through the blinds, you know, you're not sure what's happening. And this is also what a gunfight is actually like. It's confusing. It's loud. It's chaotic. It's so loud. It's literally deafening. Climatic shootouts are like the fabric of movies, right? Time and time again, we see these big shootouts at the end of movies. Clint Eastwood made a fortune doing that. And, and, and I love it. Right. But like this one, having watched it again, and I, and I don't think I had this sort of reaction when I first watched it, but like, it's violent and nasty oh, yeah. this movie like a lot of guys get shot and a lot of guys get put down in this movie and they go down hard yes they do edmund like sticking a shotgun out the window and blowing a guy away at like point blank and like there's a lot of death in this film a lot more than i remember in the last you know 45 minutes a lot of people go down right. a lot of main characters go down and or yes. or even just get wounded but the movie is far more violent than I remember, but what stands out to me, the sound design, as you just said, it capturing the, the, the chaotic nature of a gun battle, never been in a gun battle, but I feel like this movie does a really good job of just sort of creating the, the intensity and the confusion of what would happen in a situation like that. The last shot of Exley walking out of the motel and, and the cop cars are coming mm. and he holds up his badge and there's a long shot from Exley's back and you just see like, the lights of the cop cars are a little bit blurry and they're in the distance, but they're getting closer into focus. Phenomenal shot. I think it's a great metaphor because here's this cop literally walking out of the shadows into the light. He's still a cop and for all intents and purposes, a good one, maybe even a better one now. Sure. And the force itself is on its way and they're coming to him and they, they are blurred. Because it is a blurry line. Law enforcement is a difficult job. There's no question about that. And they're coming slowly into focus. I think it's a great visual metaphor. Um, it's a brilliant shot. Think about this for a second. The scene where Exley's chasing um, uh, the, the, the black guys. And one of them runs into an elevator. Oh, my God. <laughs> he doesn't know what's in that elevator. Nope. If he pulls that trigger and it's 
you know, somebody else. Uh, uh, yeah. Somebody else. That's the, that's the end of Ed Exley. Of course. And so when you see the, and the way it's shot is so beautiful. It's so kinetic. The on-screen deaths that we see are necessary. There's no violence in this movie that is not a consequence or in and of itself has a consequence that must be suffered. There's nothing gratuitous in this. There's not violence here for violence sake. Every piece of violence that we see is in and of itself a consequence or has a consequence. What about like when Bud hits Lynn, he thinks she betrayed him by sleeping with, with Edmund when in fact she was trying to help him. But like, you would never see that in a movie today. Uh, you know, a character like Bud White hitting Lynn, but like it somehow works in this film. It's a striking scene. One of my favorite things about LA Confidential is that relationship that Bud has with Lynn. I mean, it's so believable as a viewer. Like if they don't end this movie with these two being together, like I, I would just feel like the whole film is a fraud. I mean, you, they had to be together at the end and they were. It also speaks to their duality. It also speaks to the complexity of human relationships. Yeah, of course. Bud's a cop. Bud's a police officer who's in a romantic relationship with a woman he knows to be a prostitute. Correct. They both understand this. There's no illusions. There's no one's hiding from this. We all are on the same page here. Exactly right. Which is particularly interesting. It's it's this little known thing or a little understood thing that's not really talked about, but it's very clear. There's they're not harboring any no. you know illusions about what's going on here. He doesn't seem like he has a problem with it. Which is interesting because he's a cop. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, I want to give a shout out to Simon Baker Denny. The young guy killed by the DA, uh, who later went on to become some guy known as the mentalist on network television for quite some time. He plays the character Matt Reynolds in this film. How powerful is that scene when when uh, Jack goes into the motel and he finds him dead on the floor? And I mean, that's I think that the you know the expression that Kevin Spacey delivers in that shot is probably some of the best acting I think he's ever he's ever done. It's just like an incredible reaction shot. It's not my place to litigate <laughs> the idea of separating the art from the artist. Sure. Whatever. Kevin Spacey is problematic. He's got problems. He also just happens to be a supremely gifted actor. Yep. By any measure. And yeah, you're right. That shot, shot from Matt Reynolds' point of view. Exactly. Jack sees his feet from, you know, the knee down sticking out from under the bed. And he's just like, and he knows. He just knows. He's a cop. And he knows. And he sees it and his heart just rips in two because this is on him. Yeah. It's on him and Sid and he knows it and he's, there's no way to, to run from it. There's no escaping it. It's on him and Sid and he has to suffer those consequences. Why don't you do me a real favor and leave me alone? Do you make the three Negroes for the night owl killings? What? It's a simple question. Why in the world do you want to go digging any deeper into the Night Owl killings, Lieutenant? Rolo Tomasi. Is there more to that, or am I supposed to guess? Rolo was a purse snatcher. My father ran into him off duty. And he shot my father six times and got away clean. No one even knew who he was. I just made the name up to give him some personality. What's your point? Rolo Tomasi's the reason I became a cop. I wanted to catch the guys who thought they could get away with it. I was supposed to be about 
justice. Then somewhere along the way, I lost sight of that. Why'd you become a cop? I don't remember. I will let you have the honors of discussing the screenwriting genius of Rolo Tomasi. It is a tremendous character and plot driving <sighs> device that maybe in the hands of other filmmakers or other writers doesn't work, but it works beautifully well in this film. Talk about that. Okay. So for the uninitiated, Rolo Tomasi is an invented character. Um, and that's, of course, all characters are invented unless they're based in real life. But Ed actually is talking to Jack about how his dad died. He has no idea. It was a, a mugger shot him. Boom. So to make sense of it all, Ed actually creates, he invents a name, Rolo Tomasi. And he only reveals this to one person. Now, that person is Jack Vincennes. And Hollywood Jack and Ed Exley are having a great moment. There's another great piece of acting when uh, he's talking about reopening the Night Owl investigation. And he goes, the Night Owl was solved. Lieutenant. Lieutenant." (laughs) He's making it very clear. Like your career was based off of this. Are you sure you want to go back down this rabbit hole? This is LA. And I'm Hollywood Jack. I know a thing or two about image and public relations. Are you sure this is where you want to go? So they're having a bonding moment. They really open up. And that's when the, the, the film really starts to just flower. It really starts to open up for us. Such a great scene. Right? And so Ed actually, in a moment of actual tenderness, right? He's either very stiff and rigid um, or he's trying to get laid. Yeah. Um, and he, he finally just lets it go. And in that, that's that human moment that Jack was looking for. The Jack needed, and that reminded Jack of what he was doing. So Rolo Tomasi becomes this fictional character that killed Ed Exley's dad. We're the only ones who know. The audience, Ed and Jack. As Jack is dying, his last words to Captain Dudley Smith are Rolo Tomasi. This is a brilliant device. Now, I don't know if you would call this a MacGuffin or not. I don't think – I think a MacGuffin's more of a an object. Yeah, right? I would agree. Yeah. Right? The, the the suitcase in Pulp Fiction, the actual Maltese Falcon. Correct. Um, these these are MacGuffins. I don't know what a verbal MacGuffin would be. We need to I look guess. into that. We need to get a ruling. <laughs> right? I think it's got to exist out there. There's got to be a, a definition for it somewhere. Um, and if not, then this might be the first appearance of it, um, which is fine. It's happened before. Um, uh, fun fact, John le Carre, the author, espionage novelist, yeah. he invented the term mole. Did not know that. So that other espionage agencies and every country has them started using this term as an insider working for somebody else. They didn't have a term for it until John Lacare invented it. That's another Tinker Taylor reference you just that's your second Lacar reference you just made tonight, my friend. I'm paying attention. <laughs> I don't know what you would call it. It's a verbal MacGuffin. Um, but now we're on to something. Right? Now we know something that the detectives don't know, which is great. It's so good. Uh-huh. And again, the entire kaleidoscope just hinges right there, just changes in an instant. And then Dudley Smith, that moment of realization. And it's a great piece of acting by Guy Pierce. In the wrong hands, it's over the top or it's too subtle. 
Dudley Smith asks Ed Exley about Rolo Tomasi. And immediately, Ed Exley knows who, who's behind all this. Bait bites his tongue and pretends that he's never heard of him, right? So great. He takes a beat yep. and he's stuck. Like he just got, you know, like a boxer who just got stunned with a good jab. He's just like, shit. And he knows. He knows and now he has to piece all this together. But he needs help. And that help comes in the form of Bud White. It's one of the most brilliant things ever. And when someone says Rolo Tomasi, I know immediately that I like them. Of course. And that I have an ally who appreciates good film. And I used to have a, a fantasy football team called Rolo Tomasi's All-Stars. That's fantastic. That's awesome. I could have named one of my fantasy teams like Badge of Honor or something like that, too. That would have been another nice, good poll from LA Confidential. Badge of Honor. That's That's a blast. So... Hush Hush Magazine is based on a real magazine called Confidential. Yep. Badge of Honor is, for the uninitiated, is clearly based off of Dragnet. Sure. Right? Just the facts, ma'am. We're seeing all these odes to Hollywood, right? We, we have to play it up. Like, there's a, there's a great moment uh, when, when Smith and Exley are having an argument about whose case it's going to be at the Night Owl Massacre. Um, and then the reporter shows up, and they stop, what they stop their argument. Right. Dudley Smith straightens his suit out. Right. Because the, the reporter is going to take a photograph of them. Actually takes his glasses off, which is a great plot you know, device throughout the film. Takes his glasses off. They're both upright. They're both smiling. Boom. They get the shot and they go back to arguing. Yeah. It's like that's Hollywood. Like we have to put on this public you know, image campaign, and then we can get on with actually being cops. The one thing I wanted to just call out is Curtis Hansen. He did one other film, the, the film that he did actually right after this. I mean, he did, he's also known to, to direct Eight Mile with Eminem, which he did in 2002, speaking of Detroit. But before sure. Eight Mile, he directed a, what I think is a wonderful, very underrated Michael Douglas film called Wonder Boys. Give me 30 seconds on, on Wonder Boys from Curtis Hansen. One of the last great Michael Douglas performances. Agreed. I don't think Tobey Maguire was ever better. Yep. Um, And that is when Hollywood and the rest of the viewing public was reminded of just how fucking good Robert Downey Jr. can be when he wants to be an actor. So good in that, wasn't he? We saw – I honestly think that him and Oppenheimer, it was never better. I don't think Robert Downey Jr. has ever been better than he was in Oppenheimer. Wonder Boys is an exceptional film um, (laughs) about the act of writing. Right. And, and about getting old and, and being a writer who's getting old and chances at fame and sliding doors and um, narrowing windows of opportunity. If you've never seen Wonder Boys or maybe you saw it back in 2000 and when it came out and you haven't seen it since, I highly recommend revisiting that. And as Jason said, it's one of the, the last great Michael Douglas performances. He's just um, just a great story. My dear friend, Dozer Jack, and he'll, he'll listen to this because he, he, he loves film. Sure. Uh, and. You'll understand why. So Dozer Jack and I, we have interesting conversations about film, and we just create things to talk about. One of the things that we created was the fictional Film Cop Hall of Fame. Oh. <laughs> okay. So here were the rules. I, we we came, up, came up with a with a list of candidates, right, that could ostensibly make the Hall of Fame for fictional cops, film cops. So film only. No television. Okay. That's significant, right? Uh, otherwise, we'd put in like half the cast of The Wire. So um, police officers only, no feds, 
Okay. No. So this removes, <laughs> right? This removes like Clary Starling from the picture. Okay. Yep. Um, so actual like city cops in film. Um, the list included um, Mike Lowry and Marcus Bennett from the Bad Boys films, sure. right? Jack Cates from 48 Hours. Um, Lieutenant Frank Bullet, right? From Bullet. Awesome. Um, Axel Foley, right? So, and, and there was a long list. And so we went first and second ballot. Okay. <laughs> first ballot Hall of Famers, second ballot Hall of Famers. <laughs> um, some of them have to be put in as pairs. Okay. Mm-hmm. Like, for example, uh, Riggs and Murtaugh from the Lethal Weapon films. They have to go in together, yep. right? They, they just have to go into the Hall of Fame. It's together. Riggs and Murtaugh. It makes sense. It's Riggs and Murtaugh, right? So, um, but we argued that Ed Exley, Bud White, and Jack Vincennes have to go in as a trio, even though Bud White and Jack Vincennes never worked directly for each other or with each other. We put them in in the second ballot in the fictional film Cop Hall of Fame. Uh, shout out Dozer Jack. That was a great conversation. Uh, would you like to know our top eight? I'm going to guess one of the eight. Hit me. I'll be shocked if this guy's not on your top eight. It's got to be Popeye Doyle. Come on. Jimmy Popeye Doyle <laughs> was on the list. He made a, he made the first ballot Hall of Fame. And we talked about the actress who played another fictional film cop Hall of Famer. Uh, would it be Frances McDormand from Fargo? Marge Gunderson made the list. Marge Gunderson. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so uh, top to bottom, here's what we had. Because yes, uh, so the the first baseball Hall of Fame had like uh, seven members, or no, five members, and the first football Hall of Fame had like twelve members. So we split the difference. We went with like eight. Okay, so here's what we had: Virgil, they call me Mister Tibbs. Tibbs. Sure, right, love it. Sidney Poitier, yep. um, the man, another Hollywood film or not Hollywood film, Christmas film, John McClane, yep. Riggs and Murtaugh. Love it. Axel Foley. Sure. Detective Lieutenant William Somerset from Seven. Good one. I wouldn't have thought of that one. That's a good one. Lieutenant Vincent Hanna from Heath. From Heath, sure. Jimmy Popeye Doyle and Marge Gunderson. That was the first ballot Hall of Famers. Now, a couple of things that we thought about were like, did they solve the crime? Like, that's huge. Yeah. Right? Did they solve the crime? Um, are they good cops or are they just bad cops who lucked into a situation? Right. That's just why, like, you know, in, you know, Inspector Jacques Clouseau did not make the list because he's a bad cop. He's a net. He just lucked into it. Right. Second ballot Hall of Fame went to Inspector Dirty Harry Callahan. Awesome. Exley, Bud White, Jack Vincennes. They're all going in together. They have to. Yeah. Uh, Billy Costigan from the department. Oh, nice. Good one. Sure. Mike Lowry and Marcus Bennett from Bad Boys. Jack Cates. From 48 Hours. Detective Keith Frazier is played by Denzel Washington in Inside Man. Inspector Dave Toski as played by Mark Ruffalo in Zodiac. Lieutenant Frank Bullitt, mm-hmm. famously played by Steve McQueen. Great character. Commissioner James motherfucking Gordon, <laughs> played by the man, Gary Oldman. Yeah. And uh, Frank Serpico. Nice. Uh, let me ask you this. First of all, A, I love that this exercise happened. It's a phenomenal thing. I can't believe I'm just hearing about this now, but I'm glad that I'm only hearing about it now because you saved it for the podcast and that's wonderful, wonderful content. Where does Jack Walsh from Midnight Run land? Because he was a cop, but then he was a private investigator in that movie when we first- But see, he, wa- he wasn't acting He wasn't acting in the movie as, as a, a police. He was a former cop. So, he doesn't right? count. so this means like- 
So private investigators don't of count, course. right? Unless they were acting as a police officer on behalf of a city or province or township or whatever. That Those were the rules of engagement. So that's where we went. We had a great time with that. That was a lot of fun. I approve. You mentioned this in the notes. Um, we didn't talk about it, but we're going to talk about it right now. Michael Mann's Heat, the end of that show was the impetus for this show. Ferrari by Michael Mann is coming out. Christmas Day. Yes. So I texted Jason last night because I got invited to an Academy screening. Dude, how awesome is on that? this Friday of, of Ferrari. And I would ordinarily go to it, um, but I actually have plans on Friday night that I can't get out of. And um, quite frustrated that I'm not going to be able to go check that out at the Academy Museum, which is where it's going to be. So, but, Oh, uh, no, dude, you've got plans you can't get out of. I'm so sorry, dude. That's rough. You can rest assured that I'm going to see Ferrari on opening day or, or shortly thereafter. But that's that's an opening weekend film for me for short. I know you, I know you're going to see it right away because you're a man guy like I am. So hundred percent, a Michael Mann film is always a, a cause for celebration and it's been a really cool year for film. It has. Yeah. I mean, there's so much good stuff out there. There's a wonderful Korean film out there called past lives that I highly recommend. It's on my top five for the year. Um, here's what we got. We got a film from Greta Gerwig this year. We got a Wes Anderson movie this year. We got a Martin fucking Scorsese film this year. Ridley Scott's Napoleon's in theaters right now. We got a David Fincher movie. We got a Christopher Nolan movie. And now we get a Michael, Michael Mann. Mann movie. Big time. Bro, like, <laughs> are you, I'm spoiled. I feel, I feel like a child on Christmas day. Like, are you kidding me? I had reached out to you several months ago and I had said, man, check out what's coming out this fall. We've got Scorsese and we've got Michael Mann and we got Fincher all, all in a matter of like two and a half months, which is never happens. I mean, all that really, honestly, jokingly, all that's missing is, is Paul Thomas Anderson. What I love about this too, is we're talking about filmmakers who are making original things, original ideas. I know that Barbie is its own entity, right? It's it's a, it's not even a toy anymore. It's a piece of Americana, of right? Greta Gerwig's treatment of that was revelatory. Wes Anderson exists in his own world, and he world builds like nobody else. Sure does. Um, and I mean that truly, like nobody else. Um, Scorsese, Killers of Yes, it's adopted from the book, but Martin Scorsese is Martin Scorsese. He's he, he's actually he. Hollywood needs Martin Scorsese more than Scorsese needs Hollywood at, at this point. At this stage of his career, I totally agree. David Fincher does his own stuff. Christopher Nolan invents his own planet. Michael Mann exists in his own world. Adam Driver as Enzo Ferrari is an inspired choice. Could have gone a lot of different ways with that. Um, the last time we saw Enzo Ferrari or a depiction of Ferrari on screen was Ford or versus Ferrari. Ferrari. Exactly. Did you know that, um, speaking of Driver, did you know that he is rumored, and this is a rumor because nothing has happened yet, but he is rumored to play Neil McCauley in the Heat 2 sequel slash prequel movie that Michael Mann is apparently going to make as a follow-up to Ferrari. He's going to finally take on the book that he did that you and I talked about a while ago, but that if they sure. do it, Driver's going to play the De Niro character. How do you feel about that? I'm with it. I'm with it. I'm, who's going to play Chris? What I heard was Austin Butler is going to play a young Val Kilmer. And I could see that. Yeah, that's actually, that's clever. I'm here for it. So um, the insider. Dude, insider. Are we going to do that next year? I know. So for our listeners, Jason and I literally just a couple of days ago um, agreed that in late March, early April, when uh, MLB begins its next season, 
we are going to revisit the classic 1989 comedy Major League. Yes. Hey, bartender, Joe Boo needs a refill. One needs my, a refill. One of my favorite lines of a movie ever. Dennis, you say when, and I'm here front and center for Major League. It's there are pound for pound, like jokes for minute. It's right up there with any comedy ever. I've been wanting to talk about Moneyball for a while. I want to talk about The Natural. I want to talk about Eight Men Out. There's, there's a lot there that I think we can kind of get into from a baseball film, and we should try to time it for opening day. What do you think? You know what? That's a perfect idea. Um, you know, it's it's ridiculous. It's absolutely ridiculous. But that's baseball. Baseball is also ridiculous. It's it's a ridiculous game, and it's supposed to be a pastime. You hang out, you enjoy your sport. But when you read, if you're a baseball guy and you read stories about things that happen on the road, in the dugout, in the locker room, you realize these guys are all just boys. They're grown children who are supremely talented, who can – throw 100 miles an hour and hit 100 miles an hour you know like these guys are actually you know nuts and it's about how a team comes together the right personalities the right styles of people come together the right kind of talent inexplicable runs to the pennant all these cool stories that exist within the you know the history the long history um you know of american baseball uh, it's it's so much fun, and Major League pokes fun at all of it. It's got James Gammon, who plays the manager, who's like, give him the heater, Ricky. <laughs> so Forget great. about the curveball. Give him the heater. I mean, <laughs> that dude, Charlie Sheen, has some great stories about hanging out with that guy and going drinking with that oh, guy. I believe it. I believe he does. Like on, on the set, I have, I have a pair of Joe Boo socks that I wear. Um, you know, at the gym from time to time, and I have a uh, the bartender, or, hey Joe Boo, bartender needs a refill shirt that I wear some, for, you know, from time to time. I also have a uh, a, a wild thing Ricky Vaughn jersey. Well, I told you I have a I have a Roger Dorn Indians jersey that my buddy Charlie Leg got me uh, a couple years ago, which was a phenomenal gift. It's a bold choice, Roger Dorn, huh? Don't give me this Ole bullshit. You can pencil that in. That's that, not even pencil. You could ink that one in. We're definitely going to do Major League. I love it. I love that movie. Wouldn't mind coming out to Detroit and maybe do, doing that one in person. You know, go see the Tigers and then maybe we do the pod that evening. Let's go, man. Let's go. I mean, Tigers tickets are going to be cheap, so don't worry about that. <laughs> I love chatting movies with you, man. I know you and I text each other all the time in, in the downtime, but I love having you on and especially on a movie like this that I know you have such heart for. Um, your your passion for LA Confidential came through quite clearly, and I know you're an Elroy guy. It was one of the very first things you told me. When I first got to know you a little bit, is that you're an Elroy guy. So uh, I knew that this was going to be a, a special night for you. So thanks so much for your time and your friendship and your insights. Um, pitchers and catchers, you know, they, they show up in two months, right? Not even. So Valentine's Day, man. Valentine's Day. We're going to be closing out the year with Bob Clark's A Christmas Story from 1983. My, my former colleague and good friend Scott Safon is going to be taking the guest hosting reins for that one. And my big bro, Jim Campbell, is going to come back one more time to be another guest and uh, the Kamek brothers adore that film for numerous reasons, and I can't wait to talk about that one. I think that's going to be a very special conversation that, to end the year with, and um, we'll be back again after that sometime in January. I think I might be doing Pulp Fiction, Jason, as my first one out of the gate. Oh, okay. Um, <laughs> okay, how do I feel about Pulp Fiction? All right. So Roger Ebert used to talk about how there was film before Jean-Luc Godard's Breathless, and then there was film after breathless yep. people of our generation know that there was film before pulp fiction and then there was film after pulp fiction 
Tarantino, for all of his faults, for all of his foot fetishes, um, reinvented the language of cinema as we know it. And that's putting it mildly. We live in a Tarantino existence now. My dad described it perfectly, and I mentioned it this, you know, tangentially earlier. He used to say that when Ali was fighting, everybody on the block knew where they were going to be. Yep. If it was an Ali fight, you knew where you were going to be. When Tarantino releases a movie, I know where I'm going to be. It's just that simple. Listen, man, thanks again for your time. It's great to see you as always. This is a blast. Um, you are the man. I, I am the man. Thank you. Oh, I appreciate that. <laughs> I was thinking about this and I wanted to share it with you because we were talking about it off, off screen. Um, I recommended the new Sam Adams biography to you. Yep. You know what I want is I want, <laughs> since Tarantino is into slightly revisionist history, sure. um, I want a depiction of New England from 1765 to the start of the American Revolution, as written and directed by Quentin Tarantino. You want to see that? <laughs> Dennis, thank you for having me on. It was my pleasure, man. It's always great to see you. Always great to talk movies with you and pop culture ephemera, ephemera and life itself, man. Um, I don't know about that Yankees cap. We'll have to talk about that when you come to Detroit. Good stuff, my friend. Much love. It's good to see you. I will have you back in the new year. <laughs>